Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 472 with my return guest, uh, therapist Katie Vernoy. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show and the social media handles you can follow me at is uh, MentalPod, so that would be MentalPod.com and at MentalPod. Uh, let me just take a second out and go over my checklist for the show. All right, my dog is ready to make a noise that will interrupt. Um, check. Self-judgment. Check. Ready to take myself too seriously? Check. Unrealistic expectations? Check. Loud neighbors? Check. Imagining all the listeners with one foot out the door? Check. Fear that I'm going to turn away first-time listeners? Check. Vague sense that something's wrong, but I just can't see it, although it's clear to everyone else? Check clear picture of future me realizing what it was and that it's too late as I die alone in an unair conditioned room with a bare bulb, a peppy fly, and a wilted flower on top of a wobbly nightstand. Check. I want to read a survey. This is from the Love Survey. Filled out by... A woman who calls herself Bloopy Whoopy Moopy Floopy Boopy and then parentheses, yes, I just wanted to hear you say that. Are you happy? Are you happy? 
She writes, it's Friday night, you've just had a bath or shower, so you're all clean. You've got fresh PJs, a freshly made bed, and absolutely no reason to get up early on Saturday morning. Optional excellence extras, your favorite person, plus ingredients to make pancakes tomorrow. I love eating pancakes. I wish you could just remove the desire to take a nap for those two hours after you eat them. The woman that uh, raised my mom, uh, her name was Mabel, and she was originally from Kentucky. Here's here's how old she was. She was born in 1896. That blows my mind that I had interactions with somebody who also had conversations with people that fought in the Civil War. How fucking crazy is that? But anyways, she used to make me pancakes when I would either be visiting her in California or she would be visiting us in Chicago. And they were buttermilk pancakes. And they were really, really thin and really brown and really moist. They weren't big and dry and fluffy. And I just, oh, I fucking love them. And when I come across... Somebody who's making pancakes similar to those, it just brings me so much, so much happiness. Back to her survey. Seeing people succeeding at sports and being completely elated, even if I don't like the sport, seeing someone in that state of happiness makes me well up instantly. When two of your good friends who previously didn't know each other meet through you and really hit it off and become good friends too, that is a great one. I sometimes have anxiety when I'm having people over and it's two groups of friends or even just two friends that don't know each other. It's just this vague, anxi- vague anxiety that they're not going to get along. Not that they're going to get into a fight or something, but that it's just going to be awkward or whatever. And yeah, I... I just love that. And then, with my bad memory, I'll reintroduce them the next time uh, five times that we're around each other. I had a little bit too much coffee, so... <laughs> uh, my, my brain is working way faster than my mouth. Uh, sitting in a laundrette when it's really humid, hot, and thunderstormy outside. That is such... An interesting, specific one. And when I say interesting, I mean it does not sound good to me. Actually, it does sound kind of good to me, except for the doing laundry part. One thing I do not miss about living in in an apartment in Chicago is having to take a full laundry basket out into the winter snow and ice to do laundry. You're in a backpacker's hostel. You're in one of the communal bathrooms brushing your teeth and about to go to bed. I know, I think this might be the only love I will ever read that involves a communal bathroom. Uh, you're in the the communal bathroom brushing your teeth about to go to bed. A complete stranger makes a point to say goodnight to you as they're exiting to go to bed themselves. They didn't need to do that. They don't even know you. It's a very tiny thing, but feels very caring. That's a great one. I love the little things. I just love the little reminders that humanity isn't a big chaotic ball of people trying to fuck you over. (laughs) 
This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mary. And uh, she writes, My mother was in bed dying. She had maybe a day or two to live and was comfortably sleeping most of the time with morphine injections. I was planning her coffin. I had arranged for lots of her favorite newspapers and a shredder for a soft blanket for her to lie on. Friends were writing notes and collecting pictures to be put in with her. I was to put the coffin in the back of my station wagon and drive her to the crematorium a certain number of hours after her death, so the coffin had to fit her body and my car. Finally, she was deeply asleep as I pulled out my sewing tape and measured her dimensions. I was at her shoulders when she popped open her eyes, looked me square in the eye, and said, Measuring me for my coffin? I froze, not quite knowing the proper response, and feeling if I didn't move, maybe I was invisible. A couple of seconds later, she closed her eyes and went back to her drugged sleep. For your information, I did have to put a pillow under her knees to make her a little shorter to fit in the car. I'm sure she had a comfy ride, and yes, she was in the house for a day after her death, so lots of time to, quote, talk and adjust to the fact that I no longer had a mom. We were very close. I moved in with her for her last one and a half years, and it was the best thing I'd ever done. She talked about all kinds of things. She remembered her childhood. She told her secrets. We laughed and cried. It was a sacred time. Thank you for that. What a what a great example of of an awfulsome moment. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls him Stefan E. And he writes, I cried at my therapy session yesterday. The first time I could cry in front of another since I was a very small kid. I'm 50 now. That felt good. That just fires me up, man. When I see somebody or even hear about somebody letting their walls down and letting that pain out. It just, it's my favorite thing in the world because I i know what it's like on the other side of that to let all that heaviness go. It's such, it's such a backpack of rocks to be carrying around. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Yes. She writes, I've called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline so many times in the last two months that I recognize several of the operators. Roseanne, Olga, and Christine, thank you for your help. I'm not a fan of Olga. I find her to be a little prickly. I'm so glad. I'm so, while I'm, while I'm sad that you're suffering, I'm so glad that you're reaching out for help. That is, that's just, I don't have words for it. I want to tell you guys about a podcast. You're probably familiar with it um, because the host, Nora McInerney, has been on this podcast a couple of times, and it's called Terrible Thanks for Asking, and it's an awesome, awesome podcast. Uh, She talks to everyday people about their experiences surviving the worst shit that life has to offer, and it really... It's so heartfelt. Uh, You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll shit yourself. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe you will. Maybe you got the flu when you're listening. Uh, And and the the episodes aren't always happy, but they're always deep and really human. And Nora is such a great host. And she's a great author, too. So check it out. There's one episode in particular, I don't know if it's still available, but they interview the family of the late comedian Harris Whittles, uh, who was a great, great comedian and sadly uh, overdosed. I think he was like 29 or 30 years old, but that is a great episode. Anyway, you can find Terrible Thanks for Asking wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are also sponsored today by our longtime Sponsor BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. If you've never tried online therapy, uh, give it a shot. Uh, it's especially great for people that live in the boonies where you can't get to therapy or people that just want to do it from the comfort of their own house. If you're interested in trying it, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast and then Just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is a good fit for you, and you need to be over 18. And then this is one last survey before we get to the interview with Katie. And this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Margot. She writes, My mom has always lived in her own world. Her observation of social conventions has always been off. What I mean is, she does things that are socially unconventional, confusing, or downright bizarre, sometimes to make us laugh, but usually because she doesn't realize how weird it is. She used to take us, quote, clown bowling, unquote, which consisted of letting us dress up like clowns, smearing lipstick all over our faces and wearing the wackiest pajama combinations we could find, and taking us to the bowling alley where we would compete to get the lowest bowling score possible, with bumpers up, of course. We would try to bowl the ball so slowly that it would roll back to us. We'd be screaming, laughing the whole time. I was probably 10 at the time. 
People always stared, but we were having a great time, so we thought it was great. I have many stories of the strange things my mom would let us or encourage us to do. But here's the awfulsome moment. My mom has struggled with severe mental illness my whole life, including eating disorders, prescription drug addiction, bipolar, and more. She was in and out of rehab for the eating disorders throughout my high school years. It's a long story, but things got so bad that she ended up living in a homeless shelter through my college years. When I graduated, she asked me if it was okay for her to invite her friend from the homeless shelter, some lady I'd never met, to my graduation. My mom was always inviting strange characters into our lives, ranging from charmingly quirky to straight-up creepy. I guess this woman had never seen a college graduation before and just wanted to see what the experience was like. I was used to my mom making much stranger requests, so to be honest, I wasn't too phased by it and told her that it was fine. I'd met many of her homeless friends before and usually got along with them great. So they show up and sit next to my conservative grandparents and boyfriend, who had only been dating a couple of months at the time, to watch me graduate. Afterwards, we all gathered at my apartment for lunch. As we're sitting there chatting about my plans for the future and all that typical graduation day talk, the woman cut in, saying to me and my boyfriend, well, we should probably leave you so you two can go have sex. Right in front of my grandparents and my mom. I try to act as normally as possible considering the circumstance. In shock, I politely politely responded, No, that's all right. This is family time or some shit like that. But she wouldn't let up. She kept bringing it up probably three or four times until everyone finally left. Not because of her, but just because it was time to leave. My grandparents pretended they didn't hear it. My mom didn't help me out at all by telling her to cut it out or anything. She just sat there like it was a part of the normal conversation. I guess the lady must have felt uncomfortable getting in the way of our graduation sex, which was the last thing on my mind. Or maybe she was just really bored and wanted to make everyone uncomfortable so she could leave. Either way, I never saw that lady again. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Well, Maybe listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Katie Vernoy, who's uh, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and uh, she's been a guest on the podcast before. And here she is back answering some listener questions. I'm sure some questions I have. Uh, we're going to read a, uh, a survey that somebody filled out that to me is like an example of how challenging it must be to be a therapist. Uh, we'll hold off on that one. It's very dark. Um, we'll hold off on that one for a little bit. Um, and, but in generally, what we're going to talk about is questions that people have about therapy, the therapeutic relationship, and then you and I 
might be chiming in me from the side of the client, you from the side of the, the therapist about uh, things that people experience or questions that they have. Yeah, and I think I always frame it in my mind is that there's therapists that do really good work, and then there's t- sometimes that therapists get it wrong. And so I want to, hopefully we can have that conversation about kind of how we identify for folks when their therapist is not doing it right. Maybe they should find someone else because I I really want people to get high quality mental health care when they're seeking therapy. Yeah, there's a a lot of examples of bad therapists out there that then some people think represent therapy. Yeah. And uh, it's like, you know, there's asshole baseball players and they don't necessarily represent all of baseball. No. (laughs) Uh, What's the first question? So uh, the, there's a couple of questions about finding a therapist. How do you choose a therapist that's compatible without spending a lot of money visiting different therapists? So that's one part and without getting discouraged. And another part is how to find a good therapist when you're feeling totally overwhelmed and just making a phone call seems like an insurmountable task. So I'll just start with kind of what I think is probably the way that how I found my therapist, maybe how you found therapy. Mm-hmm. And what I think is best when people call me is... In truth, finding a therapist is going to be a personal process. So if you're overwhelmed and making a call, it's going to be really hard. There are a lot of therapists at this point who have online schedulers, so you could even schedule a call. You can send them an email. There's a lot of ways that you can start. You can reach out if you have just that much energy. Obviously, getting on the phone is is an important part because unless you're willing to make a lot of trips for in-person therapy or spend a lot of money on online therapy, mm-hmm. you're going to have to talk to the person to see if they're going to be a good therapist. I think that's hard because if you're not feeling motivated or money is an object, it can be really difficult to just kind of make the calls, do the vetting, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, when people reach out to me, I try to match them so I can help them find the right therapist because oftentimes even just getting a therapist to call back can be hard. I don't know if you had this experience, but a lot of people that I've talked to, plus in my own experience, therapists don't answer their phone and they also don't get back to people quickly sometimes. And that's that just... That sucks. It's rough. I need to find somebody to help me with my fear of rejection. <laughs> And so then you call and nobody answers. I I think that that sounds like really solid uh, treatment. Um, But I think being able to to look at websites and see what you're resonating with. I think a lot of people are, a lot of therapists are moving more into the idea of personal branding and having a social media presence. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there are people you can find without having to go into an office and meet with them to get a sense of who they are. But sometimes you just have to, to make the call and, and talk to them on the phone, see if there's a connection there, see if they work with you there, and then and then go from there. I think it's hard. And I would imagine, too, some are open to the idea of doing uh, an initial consultation or a brief five-minute uh, online video chat. Yeah, I think there's, there's different platforms that people use that sometimes the initial free consultation is phone, sometimes it's video. I know some therapists that will do a free initial in-person consult just because they want to make sure it's the right match, I think, especially at different price points. But yeah, of course. I mean, there's a lot of people that therapists don't want to get involved with a client that's not going to be a good match either if they can't help them or if it's it's a bad fit. It just feels bad. Now, I'm not saying every therapist does. Obviously, there's therapists that keep clients forever and they really aren't a good match. But I, I do know that most of the therapists I talk to, it's like they want to make sure that they're 
doing the right thing. <laughs> so it's kind of like a prom date, but instead of dancing, it's the fetal position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, about the trying to find a therapist. Something I've heard people suggest uh, and have actually done before is to say to someone, I can't even pick up the phone. Could you help me find a therapist, you know, to a trusted friend? Mm, And that person will not only make an appointment with the therapist, but will drive them to and from the therapy appointment. Yes, I think that's a really good point. I've had several clients where they were really nervous about coming in and they brought their partner or they had a friend bring them. I've had friends reach out to me and say, hey, you know, can you see my friend? And I think especially for a really good match, I would definitely be able to have somebody come in, do an initial appointment and and see if that's going to work. And if that's what it's, it's going to take is talking to your friend and having you come in. I think the thing on the therapist side is, is that each individual has to consent for treatment. And so if, if you're having a difficult time, your friend can't do everything. You actually have to say you, you want to go to therapy and you have to actually attend. <laughs> right. But the, some therapists aren't comfortable. They're like, I'm not going to schedule unless your friend gets on the phone and, and talks to me. Mm-hmm. And so you, that may not be the right match. I got you. But I, I do I do appreciate folks actually reaching out to their personal networks and saying, I need a therapist. Can you help me? Because I don't know what to do. Okay. I have no energy. Uh, let's take a question from the listener. Okay. So what does she wish all were? What do I wish all new clients knew prior to their first mental health appointment. So I didn't think about this beforehand, so I'm just thinking out yes, loud here. I just, I just hit, <laughs> hit Katie with these about five minutes ago as she walked in the door. So, so I'm going to, in no particular order, I think the thing that I wish that clients knew before a first appointment with me, number one, I'm not scary. I, I don't, I hope, I, am I scary, Paul? Should they know up front that you're a terrible person deep down inside to your very core? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm a scary person. I think that you're I try to... the furthest thing from scary. <laughs> but I think therapy is, is oftentimes scary. And so my hope, and I try to pr- present this to my clients when they call, is that if it's not working, you don't have to pretend it's working. If I, if I'm coming across in a certain way that doesn't work for you, let me know. And I recognize that sometimes we can't answer those questions and we can't say those things in the space that we're in. I just had a conversation with my therapist today that she, like, she, her mouth dropped because I hadn't felt comfortable in like the 10 years I've been seeing her to tell her. Yeah. And, and I'm a therapist and I know what she's going through. So she was like, whoa, okay, let's work on that. Um, well, before you continue, what were you not feeling comfortable about? Well, Basically, oh, have I disclosed too much now? Basically, I um I had made a career transition that I'm really happy about, but in all of in all of the times that we make these changes and those kinds of things, there's self doubt that come up, and I I took turned to her and I said, I worry that other people input inf- influence me too much, and even. I made this career transition and I think that you were influential about that. And I'm wondering if I took too much from you. She's like, what? <laughs> she didn't say it that way. She like, was actually very appropriate. She's like, oh, okay. Like you were trying to people please her? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So like, that I was, is awesome. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, I made this career transition. I'm much happier, but it was kind of your idea. And so I worry that I'm too influenced by other people, even you. 
That's fantastic. So, but I hadn't said that to her. So anyway, um, I, I know I recognize that it's not always easy to tell your therapist, like you're missing the boat here. And I, and especially at the very beginning. But I think for me, that's something that I want my clients to know is that if I'm missing the boat, I want you to tell me because I don't want to not be helpful. I think a lot of therapists say that and I think a lot of therapists mean it and some of them don't and some of them get defensive. So you really have to feel out the therapist and make sure it's a good match. But but that's definitely one thing that therapy doesn't have to be scary and you don't have to say anything. I think a lot of people think that therapists have some sort of magic that makes you say the things that you're not meaning to say. And there kind of is that because, I mean, I know how to make people say stuff like I know how to dig in and identify stuff. But my I'm not trying to be tricky. Right. I'm not trying to, to get them to a place where they're going to cry or they're going to have this great insight, although sometimes those are awesome outcomes. It's more I'm trying to have the conversation that needs to happen. And so any time that a therapist is making you feel like you have to say something, I think that's a problem. Because in truth, therapy should be about your process and what you want to talk about. And a therapist gives you options and opens doors. It's up to you which one that you go through. So they're, they're kind of a, a combination, uh, a witness and a guide. Yes, as, yes. As opposed to a teacher or a, uh, uh, I don't know. A, well, they're not a dictator, for sure. Um, you haven't been to the right therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there's definitely times when therapists are teachers. Mm-hmm. I think that that's true. And I think there's a lot of time that I, even though therapists aren't really supposed to, there's a lot of time that I give advice. And I think there's a lot of supposed tos that sit on my side of the, the couch over here. But I think it's it's something where too often, I think I get the experience or I get the, the feeling from other people that like, I feel so much like I have to say this thing. And I've even had conversations with clients where it was clear they felt like they had to tell me because of how I was asking it. Mm -hmm. And as I've grown and matured, I try not to do those things. But I think it can be hard because when you're in therapy, there's a lot that feels like it needs to be purged out. And as a therapist, my job is to help you kind of regulate that. How much do you tell? How much do you keep for yourself? I mean, it's it's sorting through processing versus keeping appropriate boundaries, allowing attachment to happen at the right time. And what I mean by that, because I just realized I sounded totally like a therapist and total psychobabble right now. But it's like I I want clients to connect with me pretty quickly. But I want them to remain who they are and have their their structure still in place. I want them still to feel like a whole person and not like this blob that's now attached to me. And so I think being able to help that person, depending on wherever they are in their development of, of their sense of who they are and, and what they want to do and their healing process, I still want them to maintain their own sense of this is what I want to accomplish and this is my life and not I am now in therapy. So bleh. Right. And and ultimately, they are the person paying for it, mm-hmm. and they are the one, you know, who who calls the shots in mm-hmm. terms of this works for me, this doesn't work for me. Um, yeah, you're not there to please that person, which I know I have found myself doing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, I am afraid to bring something up, you know, uh, maybe I had a setback emotionally or, uh, you know, and I... I think it's a combination of fear that they're going to tell me something I don't want to hear or there's going to be some type of um, feeling that I 
disappointed them. Not that they would ever express disappointment. That the, that the image of me as kicking ass in therapy <laughs> will somehow, you know, uh, just have a little bit of a dent in it. Which is so egotistical, but yeah. it, I yeah. suppose pretty human. And I'm not agreeing that you're egotistical. I'm just saying, I'm just, resonating because I definitely have that experience too as a client where I want to be like the perfect therapy client. Right. You know, I'm not another therapist therapizing their own therapist. I'm, I'm amazing. I've got insight and all I need is like fancy interventions and that's going to be great. Yes. Um, I came in standing on a bridge and I left with the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> that is the healing journey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, what I find is my clients actually tell me that. I'm worried that you're going to judge me. I'm worried that if I share this with you, and this is this is the part of the conversation, that, that they recognize that that is something where you can't fully be present if you haven't shared that. Mm -hmm. However, we can't deny that there is an actual relationship in the room. I, I was joking with a client the other day. I'm like, do you realize you just apologized for venting to your therapist? Like, like I think it's important to, to recognize that there is a relationship and that's going to still be in the room too. Therapists are not perfect. Therapists are not most of the time anymore. Blank slates. Like we were people sitting in the room. And so you're going to have that back and forth with the, the therapist and have, Feelings of they're kind of like a friend or they're kind of like my mom or they're kind of like my dad or they're kind of like this person that I really hate or whatever in the moment. Right. And so I think being able to honor the actual relationship, which is two people in a room, one person has one role and one person has another role, as well as whatever's coming up in the work, which is like, I hate you now because you now represent every person that's ever hurt me. And then there's there's kind of each individual kind of being in their space and recognizing that some of the stuff that comes up is going to have nothing to do with you as a client and very much to do with a therapist as a person. And so I guess also wanting... You're talking about from the client perspective or the therapist perspective? I'm kind of going back and forth, so I'll clarify a little bit. I, I know that there's times when my own stuff has come in the room as a therapist. And I know there's times when I've been tired and I've missed things, or there's been times when I have put my own morals or values into the room and I've, I had to really kind of reassess and back out and apologize or at least make it conscious. But I think a lot of therapists, um, sometimes they, they're aware of that and they really process that. And sometimes, especially I think in a more older school model, we pretended like we didn't have feelings or mm -hmm. values. Like we were going to come in and we we're going to be a hundred percent objective and give no advice and, and all of that. And that's just unrealistic. And so sometimes I'll have a reaction and my client may respond to it as though it was about them. And in fact, it was about me. I got you. And so I think that's the other thing is recognizing that therapists aren't su superhuman, that we have, we have stuff. And if something comes up and it seems like, hey, I didn't get what happened there, that didn't feel good, to call therapists out on it. Yeah. Uh, hugely important. Um, and any good therapist would want to know. Uh, I fired a therapist uh, years ago and... I knew that it was actually a sign that all my previous therapy had worked 
because I was taking care of myself and making a decision that was working for me because mm-hmm. she was very scattered and she would bring her dog into the room without me asking, without her asking me. And I began to feel resentful and yeah. I thought I'm paying for this. This is, and it's not that she's a bad person or a bad therapist. You know, we, we did some EMDR that really helped me, but it felt like it was time to move on. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, that's that's what I always say about leaving a therapist is it's a win win mm-hmm. because they'll either say you know I'm I'm I'll, I'm you know I had a good time working with you I wish you all the best which is a win or they'll say you shouldn't leave me such and such which means that you should leave them <laughs> so either way your decision to leave um, it, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. I, I'm thinking about some of my clients who left on less than positive terms and kind of the the process there, I think, for me was identifying, is it something that I did as a therapist that wasn't helpful? Is it where they were in their process? Is it something logistical like the time doesn't work or the money doesn't work or the location doesn't work anymore or whatever it is? Um, so I think that it can, there can be some lose in there, but I do think that when you feel ready to move on from a therapist, having that conversation with your therapist is important because if they don't bring up really solid reasons why continuing therapy would be a good idea, because sometimes there's, there's different times that we think people leave, they finish a specific goal and it's perfectly fine to leave at that time. But a, a therapist or responsible therapist can say, Hey, I see these other areas of growth. Would you like to work on those now? Mm-hmm. Um, we also have one. Where it's like you and you you get through the first the very beginning of therapy, you're starting to feel better, and it's like I don't need it anymore. We call that flight into health. It was like I'm fine, and now I don't need to come back to therapy again. And sometimes there really is a really quick positive thing that you were able to sort through, and you can move on. But other times it's like, oh yeah, I was just feeling good, and yeah, I need to come back to therapy. And you know, some people return, some people don't. But I think that there's there's definitely times when there is a a breach or some sort of conflict that's come up between the client and the therapist. And this one is so nuanced that I can't say that it's one way or the other, but I think there's times when being able to work through that conflict with the therapist can be some of the most important work that we do as clients because it's, it's having a different type of relationship than we've had with anyone else because you've got somebody that's, that's riding this out and has the, hopefully emotional intelligence and knowledge and expertise to help you walk through it. And then there's times when it's just, this is something where it was, you know, it's kind of that one step too far. This therapist really isn't a match anymore, whether it's where I've grown or it was never a match and I kind of made it work. And so, so there's no one, one right answer, but I think being able to get what you need is always a win. What's our next question. Okay. So this kind of goes into kind of, what the therapists are thinking about. Do therapists ever get mad at you, judge you, get annoyed by you, really like you? I'm plagued by insecurity and curiosity. So the short answer is, of course, and all parents have favorite kids. And <laughs> But I think the idea is that we're supposed to maintain a very professional relationship. And so there's this boundary that's very different than other relationships that we have as therapists. There are definitely times that I get frustrated with clients. I don't know that I've gotten super mad at clients. I'll have to be honest. There probably are times that I've now blocked out because I'm such a good therapist. And of course, I would <laughs> never get mad at my clients. But I think that there's there's times when I'm frustrated either because 
we're having a conversation that I know that we've processed something and, and this is my own stuff. Like we've processed it. There was insight. And now the client comes back and it's like a brand new conversation. And I'm like, what? I thought we had already talked about this, but that's my own stuff of wanting, you know, people to get feel better, feel better, faster, get fixed. You know, I think there's times when I have clients who I just really enjoy and really like and there's always been times in my career and, and certainly in the people I've supervised and the people I've I've managed who are therapists too, where there's some of those clients you just wish that you would have met outside and could have been their friend. And that's always hard because it adds some resonance and some positive feeling in the therapeutic relationship. But I also have to make sure that I'm not like getting overly casual <laughs> with right. those clients where I'm like, this is so comfortable. Hooray. You know, right. um, but I do think that there are are clients who I know that I'm really helping and that feels positive. There's clients who I get along with really well and that makes me very happy because it's fun and I wouldn't keep them just for that reason. Obviously, I think some therapists do, but I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I do make sure that we're still doing positive work and that there's still uh, progress being made or help being offered. But I think there are definitely clients I like better and clients who I have a harder time getting along with and the way I talk about it to other therapists is that as therapists, we walk into rooms and we have conversations that other people would steer clear from. And so there are times when it's really hard to be a therapist because we get I get mad at the perpetrators of my clients because I do see some survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. I get mad at people's bosses when I'm helping people with their work situation. So I, I feel emotionally involved. And I think even with clients that I don't have that initial connection with, I get to know them really well. And so I I genuinely like all of my clients. There's some that I feel more comfortable with and I have more of a, of a resonance with. And there are some who I like well enough and I get along well enough that I can do the work with them. And I think that's super helpful. But it's, it's interesting being a therapist because we see our clients in these moments and we see so much more than most of the people in their lives see. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's hard not to have a connection to that person, to see them so completely, you know, and obviously each person is different when they interact with a therapist, but to see that person so completely, like it's hard for me not to feel connected. And I think that, you know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why I, you know, there's times when I'm like, okay, this, this client may be, needs to move on or that kind of stuff. But I see that I'm still helping and I'm still connected. I'm like, okay, I can, I can make this work for a little longer. I can do this because of that connection. What, how do you handle it when someone is not being honest with themselves about something? Someone's justifying behavior that is either damaging to themselves or to somebody else. I think it depends on the relationship that I have with them. I think for some of the clients that I've had for a longer period of time, I'll use either just a direct confrontation or sarcasm, actually, which, you know, sometimes comes across a little snarky, or I'll do humor, like, really? You think that's going to work for you? You think mm-hmm. that's really helping the relationship with that person? I think that takes a long time and I do longer term work. Yeah, you so. wouldn't want to do that in the first No, uh, <laughs> no. You know, somebody walks in, they're like, hey, I think this is healthy for me. I'm like, yeah, you do? All right, good for you. Like, I'm not going to, mm-hmm. certainly not to do that. I, I don't know that I would do that with a long-standing client either, but I think that there's that, that knowing that connection that I get longer term where I can say like, hey, are you sure? Like, really? That's, that's, that's what you're going with? Okay. Um, 
with the newer clients or with clients that I have a different relationship, oftentimes it becomes a lot of curiosity. And this can be the stuff that I think annoys people about therapists. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think about that? Or what is the goal that you're, you're pursuing with that behavior? And I think that the idea behind that is to help the person to kind of try to find the justification. And then once there's the justification of like, this is why I'm doing it, sometimes it just falls apart. People are like, I think it would be great to burn all of my bridges and start over fresh, you know, and sometimes that actually is what you need to do. But, but assuming that's not what should be done, being able to say, okay, well, let's, let's look at each one. Let's see, let's, Mm -hmm. let's sort through. I'm I'm curious, what do you think would happen in this relationship if you burned that bridge? Or what do you think would happen in that relationship? And I think being able to, to break it down into smaller things can be very helpful so that people can actually sort through what's black and white and what's really gray. But also if, if the thing doesn't really shake out, they're like, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Then they've already kind of created their own insight around it. But there's times when I have to say, I kind of, I call people out on it and there's times I think that clients have not been okay with that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe I misjudged the relationship. Maybe that was the intervention that was needed and I planted a seed and the next therapist will pick that up and yeah. be able to reap that. I'm, I'm grateful to my psychiatrist who refused uh, 16 years ago to continue working with me if I didn't stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And who knows, that might have saved my my life. But he said, you know, in good conscience, I can't continue to take your money because you're wasting your time coming in here for treatment of depression and then pouring depressants into your mouth at night. Um, yeah. And that woke, that woke me up. That woke me up. And yeah, I'm, and I think that was responsible of the psychiatrist as well, because I think too many of us will want to be of help or want to have that client paying us or whatever it is. There's mm-hmm. lots of different reasons I think why therapists do that. But I've done that too. I've been, I've told people like, I understand that this is what you feel like you're capable of doing. But for example, if you're only coming once a month, we're just checking in. We're not actually doing therapy. You're not at that point yet. There's progress still to be made. Here's where you were when we were meeting weekly. Here's where you were when we were meeting every week every other week. And now when we're only meeting once a month, it's not flying in in good conscience. I don't want to waste your money once a month for just checking in and chit-chatting. What's our next question? Okay. The next question is, how often do I encounter a conflict of interest in my practice? And how do I navigate communicating that with current and potential clients? For example, I'm a current client and then a family member or someone very close to me reaches out to her and asks to start seeing her. So I've actually had this happen more than once, and each time it's been very different. But if if there's someone who wants to work with me and a family member has worked with me before, I really have to navigate that because it could be that it was somebody that was very long ago. It could have been somebody that was in a different capacity. Like there's there's a lot, and this there's a whole ethical code about dual relationships. So I think it's important that therapists are really thoughtful about it but like a conflict of interest of like seeing more than one person in the family, that kind of stuff. I always make sure that I have a conversation with them about this is what the deal is. This is how it could impact our therapeutic relationship. Or, you know, I don't think I'm the only one that can help you. Here's a referral. And so I think there are times when it's been a little bit muddier for me. And, and I've felt that where I've, I've 
seen more than one person in a family or I've expanded it out and seen different pieces of the family together. And I think in truth, sometimes it's been the right choice because I had such a rich understanding and information about somebody. And sometimes it's been like, I have this person and then their friend and then their other friend and then their housemate. And like, sometimes it can start getting a little too much. And I think that part is, is something where being able to say, Hey client or Hey other client, like this is how we're going to handle this. And so, so it's, there's no black and white there, although there is like you can't have some of the, you know, you can't have sex with your clients, you can't, you know, go into business with your clients, those kinds of things. But, but the gray areas are if there's going to be a dual relationship, like my therapist and I are both therapists in the same community, there's a lot of times where I show up in the same place that my therapist is at. <laughs> right. You know, and so we navigate, we talk about that. But, but some of the dual relationships are fine. Some of them really hurt the therapeutic relationship. And so for me, what I do is I really, when possible, really have a deep conversation. Hey, how is this going to impact us? And even before I take a client, really sorting through, does it make sense for me to be the person? Because I don't know. I think that someone else can be of more help to you because of who referred you. <laughs> What's our next question? Okay. Ooh, I think that was the last one that I had in order. Um, somebody said, ask her why Freud wasn't funny. <laughs> I think Freud was hilarious. You just had to, uh, you had you have to smoke a pipe to really get Freud. I think you have to smoke a pipe. You probably have to do coke. <laughs> oh, did he do coke? He prescribed it. Oh, he prescribed it. Yeah, that was the big antidepressant that he thought was a f fantastic. I don't know. And I hate, like, I'm, like, I'm not... I don't hate Freud. I think Freud founded the profession, but I think it is kind of funny because the whole like sitting behind the couch and the blank slate, a lot of people at this point, and this is hearsay, so I don't have like some sort of specific like citation, but that he was super shy. And so that's why he didn't want the clients to see him. He just wanted to kind of be there and, and analyze and be behind the scene and, and all of that. And, and you can safely fall asleep when they're not looking at you. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how much of that is true, but it certainly speaks to some of the stuff that we do is just because Freud didn't like people. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm going to read you a survey. Um, there's a survey that uh, people can take on the website. There's actually about a dozen, but this one is uh, my first day in therapy. And this one I want to read because to me it is an example of how challenging it must be being a therapist on any given day. This was filled out by a male uh, between 26 and 35 years old. Um, what brought you to therapy? Childhood abuse and fear of hurting others. Uh, describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy. I was afraid my thoughts were illegal and I would be judged and ostracized for my thoughts. Of the fears described, did any of them come true? Yes. I said I had a fantasy, and then in parentheses, not that I wanted to act on it, just a fantasy, of hurting a child, and the therapist contacted the FBI, not the police, uh, just jumped right to the top. I don't know if there's a typo in there or something, and the therapist contacted the FBI, not the police, just jumped right to the top. I don't know exactly what that means, but mm. um, I lost my job over that one, my dream job. I worked, the job I worked 10 years to get was ripped away in a day for having a thought. 
um, as a client, uh, what worked best for you in therapy? Having a safe place where I could completely open up and bear my soul. And of course, EMDR, that stuff is the best. And by the best, I mean the worst at the moment and better weeks later. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Um, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? Uh, uh, Bonnie, she was defensive. She said right away she was not my friend. She was a therapist. Her boundaries were cold. Linda, she needed to be in charge, told me in group that I was BPD and definitely going to prison eventually. Wow. Wow. Ken, he was a hippie, stated multiple times he had never worked with anyone who had issues like me and was unsure of himself. That should have been a red flag. Teresa, she never flinched no matter what I said. She was like a stone. I had no way of knowing if what I was saying was good or bad. She missed her calling as a poker maverick. (laughs) Mary, she was like the mother I always wanted. Warm, compassionate, with strong boundaries. I made my best progress with her. I still go back for tune-ups. Um, do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist at this time? Yes, but the law is still the law. And if I did something illegal, I could not tell her because she would be honor bound to report. Is there anything else you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? I had to compartmentalize my life to survive my childhood. Breaking down those walls was terrifying and difficult, but I am much healthier now. If I hadn't sought help, I would be dead in prison or about to be. My best therapist forced me to look at events from all angles, including the thoughts and feelings. What you do matters. You will save a life at some point. You may not even know it at the time. Two weeks ago, I was in a dark place with my thoughts. I was driving down the road and saw a young female hitchhiker in the middle of nowhere. I reached into my bag of tricks and pulled out some self-care. I told myself I was worthwhile, patted my little self on the head, and kept driving right past her. Woot woot. Mary, she may have helped me save a life. Wow. 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 So there's a lot that we don't know from what was in there. Obviously, this is a survey, and there's a lot of different pieces to that. I think you commented that it shows how hard it can be to be a therapist, and I think it also shows how hard it can be to be a client. I think there are really dark places that we can all go, and I think if we don't share those dark places with anyone – and they eat us, eat at us, and they become poisonous to us. I think that's when what this person was talking about can happen, where we can do things that we really regret. We can go into places that we didn't think we would or that we fear that we will. Because if we don't talk about them, we can't develop tools to deal with them. I think there's that for sure. I think developing tools to deal with them, and I'm glad this person was able to go in their bag of tricks and not hurt themselves or the person. On, I, I don't know what was going to happen there. I don't know what's going to happen there, but it, <laughs> it didn't I'm glad. sound good. It didn't sound good. But I think even more so, I think when we're alone with these dark places, there's a lot that can happen. People that end up in abusive relationships, families that end up in very toxic and abusive d- dynamics, oftentimes part of the reason is that they're so isolated. 
And the isolation leads to, well, this behavior is okay. And then let's step out a little bit further. This is okay. Now this is okay. And when there's no grounding with the rest of society or with anyone that can give you some reality testing, it can feel more and more okay to do things that are not okay. Yeah. That society is determined are things that we don't want humans to do. We don't want humans to do. So looking at killing ourselves, hurting other people, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. It can make sense when we're alone with those dark places or we're in alone, we're alone in a group of people that are all in that same dark place because we're getting validation that what we're doing is normal because this is what our family says. And so being able to share that with a therapist is important. But what I heard and what this person was saying is that the first therapist and maybe the second therapist, well, certainly the person that called the FBI, it sounds like there was something pretty intense with what was said. I don't know. I'm not, I wasn't in that therapist's shoes. I have no idea why that person thought that they needed to not just notify the police, but also notify the FBI, right. where it sounds like the individual thought, I had a thought, and the thought was intense. But to lose your job and to have such a dramatic response to this is this is what I'm thinking certainly suggested, okay, there's some some darkness there that needs to be addressed. But I think it also was this isn't socially acceptable and the therapist wasn't even able to sit with me with this. And that can be really harmful mm-hmm. and so scary for people. Especially, I would imagine, we don't know what the, the case was with this because we don't know what was shared but let's say it was something they shared that they had never acted on in real life that they were not making plans to do um it was just a recurring fantasy whether it was something that they enjoyed or not you know in terms of having the fantasy whether it was intrusive and they hated having it or you know they got high from thinking about it if they weren't planning on acting on it and they had never acted on it before, that therapist was in the wrong bringing mm-hmm. the authorities into it, correctly? Correct. Yeah, Correct. I think I think the thing, and this is, I guess, going back to one of the first questions, what I, which, what I hope people know about therapy is mandated reporting and breaking confidentiality is actually should be a very small, tiny, tiny part of what a therapist does. So... I'll just kind of lay it out really fast. So child abuse, we have to report. But if you're an adult and you were abused as a child, we don't have to report that. If you're planning to kill someone, I need to warn that person and I need to, you know, make sure that you're safe and that kind of stuff. But if you've already killed someone, I can't report that. And so do you just look at their eye calendar and you go forward (laughs) and go, no, I don't see any murders on the books. No murders on the books. You go backwards and you go, got very few murders very few murders. A negligible amount. <laughs> I mean, I think that we get into serial killers and other things. I think there's safety issues that the therapist might be looking at. And, and yeah. certainly there's, if the therapist feels they're in danger, you know, like there's, there's nuance that I, I, you know, I don't want to say like it's black or white here. But right. I think if you have committed a crime, as long as it's not against dependent adults, elders, or children, it's not reportable. So if somebody said when I, uh, you know, five years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when I was 25, uh, I pushed a guy off a bridge and killed him and mm-hmm. I've never been caught. That's not that's not something you no. would have to report. No. What if they said I, I pushed 
a child off a bridge when I was a child? Ooh, that's a tough one. That one I would want to consult on. I'd probably consult with other kind of ethical experts, that kind of thing. My my initial response is probably I would need to do something about that, but I don't know what it was. And I certainly wouldn't jump to, I've got to call the FBI. What if somebody said, I just really like bridges? <laughs> I like bridges too. <laughs> I seem to be obsessed with bridges today. That's like the fourth reference I've made to uh, a to bridge bridges today. <laughs> um, and and I talked about burning bridges. We're both like we're oh both my God. like it's... way deep into bridges right now. Yes. <laughs> uh, tonight I'm going to watch every movie Jeff Bridges ever made. Oh, there we go. Um, so I think uh, I understand pretty clearly then what is mandated mm-hmm. to report and what. What isn't? If someone is in danger, yes, or if a dependent elder or a child was is to be harmed or has ever uh, been harmed when this person was an adult. Well, I think no? if see, I mean, that's where the nuance comes in. If you're an adult, kind of saying your own story, and it's it's a child who's no longer a child, right? You know, okay, killing a child, I that that I just don't know the answer to, but if if you had been the wrong age when your younger girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and you had sex, if you're both now adults, I wouldn't report that. So like there's, there's weird little tiny things that sometimes can be difficult and you know, there's certain ages and it's probably different across states, but generally as long as there's not a child dependent adult or elder at risk, there wasn't some sort of something that, that occurred that, shouldn't have as far as with that those those types of folks most things are not reportable what if somebody shared oh this guy really pisses me off and uh i think i'm gonna i'm gonna kill this guy i would i would ask so are you saying that figuratively or is this something where you've got a plan and can i get in on it And can I get in on it? No, I think it's it's sorting through. That's the thing where it was like this: the the person that is it a guy or a girl? I keep going. A go. guy. Okay, so when he told this initial therapist, if it was a fantasy and there was no plan and no previous behavior that suggested it might happen, like there's no report. So I think no matter what, a therapist should explore with you: do you actually have a plan to hurt yourself or someone else? Is there, is there someone in danger? Can I protect somebody? That's the point of reporting. It's not. That's what it sounds like is, is just. Is there a plan? Keeping society safe. Yes. Um, what if this, what if this person said, um, because this, it sounds from this person's survey like there was a fantasy of abducting and killing girls. We could go there. I don't know, yes. but sure. Let's let's assume let's that's just, what it was. Just, let's, let's just jump. Let's that, make the, the, it, the jump. That's what it was. <laughs> what if this person said, um, I've never killed anybody, but I will drive around in my car with a rape kit in it and imagine what it's like. Mm. I think that's really hard. It goes back to what's the relationship I have with the client what do I believe is really going to happen? When I was in public mental health, I was trained in how to assess for hospitalization. And 
the thing that stood out to me was you can't lock someone up because they're crazy. People can be as nutty as you want. I mean, and they didn't say it this way, but like people can believe that, you know, people are out to get them. They can believe all of these things. That is not something that you would report. And it's not something that you would involuntarily hospitalize somebody. It's when they're a danger to themselves. They're severely neglecting themselves. Like we call it gross neglect or, if they're a danger to someone else. And that's really the standard that I put across the board. And so if somebody has means, they've got these fantasies, but they're able to identify how they would not continue to not do this and how to, to decrease the likelihood by getting rid of the rape kid and, and you know, having some different activities and that there's, there's a real plan and we call it a safety plan. It used to be a safety contract. People were like, I promise I won't kill myself for anybody else. And that doesn't, that's not helpful. What is your actual plan to not do that? Right. <laughs> uh, so, but if they, there was a safety plan that I felt convinced and, and pretty comfortable that the person was going to continue to keep fighting those things off. I wouldn't report. I can't imagine how difficult on any given day mm-hmm. your, your job must must be I just my my hat is oh you guys are truly in the the trenches and and making a difference and i'm so grateful um, well i think you give me more credit than i need though because because oftentimes the conversations are with people and it is facing some of these deep pains and these deep traumas but these types of decisions that we're talking about there's places and there's definitely specializations and therapists that end up where they end up having to make these decisions more frequently. But most therapists aren't having to make decisions like this on a daily basis. But the possibility of having to deal with that, just like to me, a mm-hmm. police officer, mm-hmm. the possibility is yeah. is there for that. And that to me is, is it's brave and yeah. it's, and it serves a purpose. So take my fucking compliment. All Katie. right. All right. <laughs> So uncomfortable taking compliments. I know. I hate. I know. I, and I was trying to please you. It's, yeah. <laughs> Therapists well, have their own issues. So we I love them. having you on, Katie. I love uh, what you what you do. And uh, Katie and I actually are uh, going to be putting ourselves out there to go speak. We spoke at a conference um, about what three months ago. Yeah. And yeah. We October. We uh, Katie shared the therapist perspective um, and I shared the client perspective on what therapists and clients uh, kind of get wrong or right about uh, therapy and it was uh, such a blast it was so much fun and um, I hope I hope we get out there and do it so if if you're out there and you're looking for uh, speakers uh, and your bar is really low (laughs) No, I thought we did a. I thought we did a great job, and we're putting some uh, some video together. Uh, so yeah. maybe we'll put that up on our on our website. A little five minute teaser video. Yeah. And now I'm grossing myself out because I'm sitting here plugging uh, us. I was not anticipating doing that. Well, I think can I can I say one thing so yes. it doesn't feel gross? I think our intention is to try to decrease mental health stigma and to tell people what therapy really is. I think if we can do it in a way that's approachable and hopefully funny, yes. <laughs> unlike Freud, um, <laughs> if we can do that, I think that's 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 all I'm hoping to get out of it is just yes. being able to raise awareness and help people find therapy and get the most out of the therapy that they find. Well, I want to win a Grammy, so fuck you. All right. All right. <laughs>
<laughs> if you win a Grammy, do I win a Grammy? <laughs> I don't even... <laughs> Thanks, Katie. <laughs> love, love talking to Katie. Uh, we have not finished editing the trailer that we were talking about, but uh, we'll post it on the website or tweet it out or post it on Facebook when we, when we finish doing that. Today's episode is sponsored by Attitude. Uh, if you are looking for comfortable, breathable sheets that are sustainable, Attitude is what you want to get, man. They're made of 100% organic, clean bamboo, and they are the softest sheets that I have ever, ever had. And I'm comparing them to high thread count sheets, and I just, I just love them. They're antimicrobial. They're super soft. One customer even said they feel like you're being cocooned by a zillion kittens. Uh, so why not try Attitude? These amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial. And if you're not fully satisfied, you can return your sheets for a full refund. They even cover shipping on returns. And honestly, I don't know why you would want to return them. They are really, really awesome. Attitude sheets, they're soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. When you support our sponsors, you support our show. And right now, you guys will get 20% off your first... Let's sh- <laughs> say this fast 10 times. You will get 20% off their sheet set and free shipping. Just text MENTAL to 64000. The only way to get 20% off your set of attitude sheets and free shipping is to text MENTAL to 64000. That's M-E-N-T-A-L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. We've got some good surveys. We always have good surveys because you guys are so, so helpful in filling these out and just going deep. And whether you're sharing something positive from your life or something painful, uh, just never, never ceases to, to amaze me how connected I feel with the the things that you fill out even it's if it's something I've never experienced the feelings feel so familiar whether I'm in it or it was in the past this is uh, from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself sloth girl she writes I love finding money on the ground even if it's just a dollar it's like a nice little surprise from the universe telling you how lucky you are I love reading Wikipedia articles on missing people or unsolved cases before I go to sleep. Weird, I know. I don't judge. I'm just, I love, I love the variety of the surveys. Same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, this all just started. And she writes, I love the way my dog's feet smell. They smell like buttery popcorn from the movie theater. I love hugs from my dad. He hugs me just a little too tight, but I never tell him because it makes me feel so loved. Oh, do I get the dog, the dog smell. I love when I take a nap with Gracie and her feet, assuming that she wasn't just walking through poop. Um, Yeah, there's just a, it's, it's almost like Fritos. It's so strange how we love the smells, most of the smells of our dogs. 
This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Goblin, and she writes, I love when I crawl into bed after work and my girlfriend sleepily opens her arms to me. She's so warm and soft. I love describing how some aspect, I guess this could have been in the love survey as well. I love describing how some aspect of my brain works to a friend and they totally get it. Oh, that's a great one. And I love animals choosing to lay on me. Yes. Yes. I love when Gracie lays on me. I don't know if that's, I would imagine a dog trainer would say that's not good for keeping you as the alpha person, but I just love it. I love when my girlfriend lays on me too. Sometimes I'll I'll just be like, can you just come lay on top of me? It just feels, it feels so good. And there's scientific, uh, scientific data that, that says that it does create good drugs in our brain. I'm totally paraphrasing. And uh, I had a therapist one, one time recommend get 50-pound bags of rice and you can lay them on you. That's a lot of rice to eat. Why would you buy the rice and not eat it? Maybe you cook the rice and lay all of it on you and then you eat your way out of it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Depressed Cat Lady. She identifies as pansexual. She's in her 30s and was raised in a stable and safe environment. She's never been sexually abused. Darkest thoughts. All my life I've been fantasizing about terrible things happening to me or my family. When my world crumbled into pieces a couple of years ago, I started doing that a lot. When I do that, I feel like I want to have a reason to completely fall apart, a solid, visible reason. Battling with depression is so exhausting. I have a terrible fear of death, but in those fantasies, a loved one usually dies. It's awful. Sometimes I'm so deep in that fantasy that I actually start feeling those emotions, and that's when I usually snap out of it, and it feels like waking up from a dream. Darkest Secrets When I was 13, I dreaded Mondays, because on Mondays I had a class where this one boy was nasty to me. I don't think it would count as bullying, but it sure felt like that. Often, he didn't even say anything. He just made faces at me. I was an awfully timid child, and if I was sitting on a car on a car on a Sunday, I, I think she meant in a car, I often wished it would crash, and even that I would die in the crash so that I wouldn't have to go to school on Mondays. I was so ashamed to feel that way because it was just two hours of a week, but I was so relieved when the school year was over and I never had that class with that boy again. I've never told this to anyone. I was a terrible big sister to my little brother who is three years younger than me. I was so jealous of the attention he got. One of my earliest memories is when I wanted to sit on my mother's lap, but I was not allowed because she had such a big pregnant belly. That's when it started. When I was little, I had trouble handling my bad feelings, and I once slapped my little brother on the back so that there was a red hand mark. I felt so terrible for doing that, but I denied it. I doubt my mother bought it because I feared so much that my mom wouldn't love me if I behaved badly. I've carried that fear with me all my life and have mastered the art of people-pleasing. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to learn out of it, but it hurts. I did play a lot with my little brother, but sometimes I was such a bully. I was always the one deciding what we'll do. At least I grew to control my emotions and stopped acting violently. 
These days, I have a good relationship with my little brother, though we don't see each other very often, and we've never had a deep bond as I have with my big brother. I've never really talked about these things with him, and I would be terribly fearful to do so. Sexually, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am deeply submissive, and I get to express myself sexually with an amazing partner. My most powerful fantasies include kidnapping, being used by multiple dominating sadists, being drugged and raped or chased down in the forest. Sharing these make me feel strong and inspired. I'm okay with all of my kinks, and I get to live them too. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry for being horrible to you when we were kids. I wish we could be closer. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could say what I need, kindly but firmly, and not get too upset if the other person has some kind of negative emotion about it. And and just real quickly, back to the uh, sexual fantasies part, uh, I uh, I try to find a line between saying this and not just saying it too often, but when somebody describes fantasies like she had, there's a clear differentiation between somebody like that wanting that to happen in real life and them choosing to do it with a consenting partner. Have you shared these things with others? I have talked about my childhood with my therapist, but I can't remember what her reaction was if there was any. How do you feel after writing these things down? Crying. Thinking about the hard parts of childhood makes me feel broken. It also feels good because I'm sort of good at letting myself be broken, and then I cuddle with my stuffies. Thank you for that. We had a guest uh, years ago who had a... um, I'm not sure what you call it, a diaper fetish... um, I know there's a name for it that, that I'm blanking on right now, but one of her his earliest memories was his little brother getting the attention being breastfed, and his little brother was in diapers, and something just clicked in his brain, and from that point on, um, there was a fetishizing uh, of of diapers and being an infant by him. It's a, it's amazing. The things that our brain and our sexuality will do with things that that hurt or make us anxious. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself perpetually chilly. She writes, I spent $120 on a kettle slash electric water boiler that holds over three liters. I can activate it remotely or set it on a timer. So when I wake up or when I get home, I have enough hot water freshly boiled for tea, coffee, oatmeal, or pasta. Life literally cannot get any better than this. Yeah, I, I love uh, when you get some some new little device that makes your life easier. I, I had a hand grinder for the longest time for coffee. And it was really cool for the first month, maybe. It'd be like, I'm doing this by hand. I'm Mr. Old-Timey. I'm not using any electricity. And then after my arm getting tired 19 times in a row, I was like, I think I need to get something electric. And now every time I grind beans in the electric grinder, I'm just like, oh, thank God for this. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself hungry and tired. She writes, I love driving down curvy, heavily wooded roads. 
even it adds even if it adds some time to my drive, I'll go out of my way to drive down these roads instead of more urban roads. There's something calming and freeing, maybe because it causes me to focus on my actual driving and doing less overthinking in my head. Whatever the reason, I just love it. That's a great one. There's a shortcut in LA that you can take sometimes when traffic is really bad and it takes you through a forest preserve, which when you think of LA, you never really think of a, a of a forest preserve. And I love that too. It's super curvy, but there's such a feeling of when you just get out of traffic and all of a sudden you're the only person on the road and you're driving through nature. It's It's an amazing feeling. These are some loves, or a love, filled out by a woman who calls herself T. She writes, I love when my dog knows it's time for bed. He lets me get in first and then just cuddles around me. I love the feeling of a full tank of gas. I love the way my car drives just after finishing putting air in all the tires. I love when I'm home with all the lights off, one single candle burning while watching TV. Oh, those are great. Those are great. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Play-Doh. He is, uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. And he says that he was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. I would say it is a lot worse than that. And you will probably agree after I read some of this. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was around four or five, my mother told me about vaginas and I asked her what they looked like so she showed me hers. Later, when I was nine or ten, I was curious about breasts and I figured I'd ask her if I could see her breasts. When I asked her, she said no, coldly, and it was never brought up again. It made me spiral into an overwhelming sense of shame. I was so disgusted with myself and I thought my mom saw me as gross. I was a I was a Christian growing up, and throughout the next few years, I would ask God for forgiveness for asking to see my mother's breasts. It plagued me, and the shameful feelings were so strong it was unbearable. I was aware that incest was wrong, and I thought I had done something horribly wrong and worse that my mother knew. Sometime later, around the same age, my mother touched me in the bathtub. She wiggled my penis around with her finger and said in a teasing voice, Is this your little plaything? The image burns in my mind and makes me feel like I'm imploding. There's a tightness in my torso, and I get the feeling when I think back to it. Thinking about it also makes me so mad I want to punch a hole in the wall. That is so fucked up, and your mother would be most likely in jail if Child Protective Services knew that. You know, the thing to always ask yourself when it's the the person in power is female and the person who's not in power is male is if the genders were reversed, how would I feel about this? Because a lot of people tend to think that males are impervious to feeling sexual shame or sexual abuse when the other person is female and there's a lot of myths around that and and what is your mom doing giving you a bath around nine or ten 
The memory has resurfaced sometimes, but it came back recently after listening to this podcast. Later, when I was 12, my mother asked to see my pubic hair, and she pushed for me to show her in a teasing way that is so fucking gross. When I said no, she said something along the lines of, oh, you're no fun. I remember feeling really uncomfortable with the situation. I'm not entirely sure if this sounds like sexual abuse. It is absolutely sexual abuse. You talked about sexual abuse victims, and it sounded exactly like me, so I suddenly realized I have to confront these things that have made me confused in the past. My mother had a lot of control over me growing up. Whenever I did something I viewed as really bad, I would go to her and confess because I couldn't handle the guilt. I used to draw sexual pictures, and I would get really guilty and show them to her, and she would throw them out. This lasted into my teens. She also would say controlling things like, oh, you're just going through your teenage rebellion phase whenever I would be defiant in any way. Whenever sex came up, my mother always made sure to tell me to not have it until marriage. It was and still is a giant deal. If a relationship comes up, the first thing they ask is if they live together. It made me horrified of sex. Present day, I catch my mom looking at me in ways that make me feel uncomfortable. I catch her eyeing my crotch all the time. Oh man, I am so sorry that you are experiencing this. And I know firsthand a lot of the things that you have experienced. Um, It took me years to be able to give weight to what happened to me as a kid because it wasn't really overt, but the pattern of it was definitely covert sexual abuse. And, um, Nobody wants to face that truth when it's their parent, really anybody, but especially when it's a when it's a parent. And um, my 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 heart goes out to you, man. Um, he's also been physically and emotionally abused. My father was emotionally abusive. If he was in a bad mood, he would lose it on us kids over nothing. He was extremely inconsistent. Sometimes great and loving, but sometimes he acted like a selfish baby and would take it out on his kids. A lot of people say I'm stone-faced, and I think it's because I was damaged from approaching my dad lovingly and being hurt when he'd snap at me. I learned to approach him with no emotion, so I didn't have to feel bad for pissing him off. Most of my memories of my dad growing up are of him in a bad mood. My oldest brother, eight years older, physically abused me almost every day of my childhood up until I was 15 and he was 23. He was way bigger than me and stronger than me and he never listened to me when I said no. He would kiss me on the cheek and tell me how cute I was and I would kick at him and tell him to stop but he wouldn't stop. I have trauma from the vice grips he would put me in all the time. I was powerless and it always made me furious. My parents always thought of it as playing so they never intervened. Eventually, I had to tell my mother about it, and she spoke to him, and he stopped. After that, we despised each other for a few years and would get into verbal fights. Earlier this year, I had a dream where I was in a dark room, and I felt my brother come up and grab me from behind, and I woke up in a panic. I would get beat up at school. We moved around a lot when I was a kid, and first, second, third, and fourth grade were all at different schools. When I was in fifth grade and finally felt like I had friends, they started burning things and they burned a hole in my hat. And my mom found it and asked who did it. I didn't tell her initially, but I remember her getting mad. I remember getting mad at one of them and decided to tell. 
My mom told the school and they all got in trouble and knew it was me. They confronted me outside after school with sticks and cornered me and beat me up with them. One of them kneed me in the face, giving me a bloody lip. It turns out my sister and the bully who bloodied my nose's sister were friends and she told her and he got in trouble at home. My mom and his mom decided that they wanted us to be friends, so we started hanging out at each other's places. He would mock me and talk down to me, and he would have dinner without me at his place. He still continued to attack me throughout the next couple of years at school, kicking me in the halls, punching me, pinning me to the lockers, intimidating me. As time went on, it gradually stopped. The incident made me a reject on the play field, and I spent lots of recesses wandering around alone, and if I crossed the group, I got in trouble, and they'd yell at me, fuck off. Oh, man. That is a lot of shit for a kid to deal with. And it's like, if we don't process those feelings, that they, they don't go anywhere. They, we may push them down, but they're still there. Any positive experiences with the abusers? There's a positive side to each relationship I have with an abuser in my family. I get along with my mom great, and I talk to her about plenty of things. My relationship with my dad these days feels superficial, but it's at least pleasant. My brother, who wrestled me, would always fight back against my parents if he felt they were being harsh on me, and that's something I've always loved him for. I get along with him fine now, and he's one of the funniest people I know, and he makes me laugh harder than anyone else can. It does complicate the way I view what happened. I have a hard time thinking of them as abusers, since they are my family. I have a hard time coming to terms with the things that happened with my mother, because she's so kind and easy to talk to, and I get a sense of comfort with her. That is, you know, and I I don't know if that's, part of her sickness or if that's conscious on her part or people that do what she she does whether it's a part of grooming or you know who knows if who knows where what is going through her brain when she crosses those boundaries that that she does but I do know that having experienced things like that people have a really really hard time finding intimate loving relationships because i mean if you can't trust your caregiver it's really really hard to trust somebody that is outside your family darkest thoughts i get really turned on by stories about women mutating into hermaphrodite animal monsters i think the word uh hermaphrodite is uh considered derogatory and i I think the word um that people use and should use is intersex and um that describes somebody who has both male and female genitalia and i'm not shaming you for it i didn't know until a couple of years ago as well gracie Uh, The transformation has to be against their will and they have to be scared like an American werewolf in London. I like the detailed violent descriptions about the transformations and the person's thoughts and feelings. The stories don't even need to have sex in them. The transformation is arousing enough that I can get off on it easily. I've never told anyone that this is my fetish. I feel like everyone I know would be disgusted. Dude, I don't think it's disgusting. I, I think it's 
it's human and we all we can we don't choose what turns us on you know all we can choose is what we decide to do with it and and can we express it in a way with you know without it being harmful to ourselves or somebody else darkest secrets uh, I used to bully someone in seventh grade. He was smaller than me, and I think I did it because I was getting overpowered by my brother, so I found some way to have power over someone else. He would come over and hang out, and we'd go to the park, and then I'd push him around, and he'd try to escape, but I'd grab him. I would be nice to him and then suddenly attack him. It was satisfying and made me feel powerful, but it was fucked up that I did that to him, and I wished I didn't. Only now, when I look back, can I make sense of my motives. I'm addicted to masturbating, and I masturbated so much I had to go to the ER because my testicles were in so much pain, I was worried I permanently damaged them. After the doctor told me to stop, after the doctor told me to stop masturbating, or if I were to continue masturbating, to use lube, but he recommended I just stop doing it outright. I lasted 10 days and then continued to abuse myself. It hurt so much, but I just kept going. All of my torso would be in pain. Peeing hurt, and getting hard would hurt, but I'd keep doing it three to four times a day. I couldn't stop. I started getting twitches when I'd continue to do it. It was unbearable, but I'd crawl right back into it. I've since stopped, and am now about a week into stopping. I have bruises all over my penis, and I am scared I will never be the same again. That is not a surprising at all thing for you to be dealing with given given what you experienced as a kid um and there's two books that i recommend the first is a book by john bradshaw who um is an expert on sexual compulsions and shame and it's called healing the shame that binds and another book about the things that you experienced by your mom is a book I recommend all the time, uh, and it's by Kenneth Adams, and it's called Silently Seduced. But uh, I really recommend that you um, get help. There are some great but sadly expensive um, rehabs for sexual addictions, um, but this stuff does not go away on its own. We, we need to work through the pain. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have weird taste in porn, but I really just want to, I want regular vanilla sex with lots of cuddling and smooching with a girl I like. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I fantasize about telling off my dad and making him feel terrible because I've felt so powerless under him growing up and he has a smugness to him and likes to talk about how well he raised us kids. He's delusional, and I feel like he's robbed me of a healthy sense of self-worth. I don't tell him these things because I know he would just deny it, and it wouldn't progress anything forward. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could get over my fear of girls. Whenever I get a waft of intimacy, I eject from the situation. I don't pursue girls, even though I have a really intense sex drive. I think my fear of rejection is linked to the issues I have with my mother that I stated earlier in the survey. I will even get nervous if I have a female cashier at the grocery store. 
I believe in equal rights for women, and I know they are just people, so I feel terrible that I have such a hard time around them, and I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. It drives me absolutely crazy and makes me want to kill myself. I think about the fact that I'm a virgin constantly. Whenever I hear virgins being mocked, I get furious. Whenever I watch anything or listen to any song talking about, quote, having a girl over, or any regular person I talk to talks about sex, I immediately get sad. I get sad thinking about the fact that I've never even got close to having a girlfriend because I just push away anyone who gets remotely close to me. The simple answer I hear is just to go on Tinder, but that sounds like way too much for me to handle. I'm a mess. Uh, You know, as I stated at the beginning of the podcast, I am not a therapist, but I've experienced a lot of the things that you have experienced, and I think that trying to get into a relationship before you process the trauma that happened to you um, is going to be putting the the cart be- before the horse, as they say. And when I say, as they say, I mean people from the 1700s who made me pancakes. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some things with others. I've had people say the things that I talked about on this survey are no big deal or nothing compared to what they've been through. You know, it's not a fucking contest. It is not a contest. And it's not up to somebody else to tell us that something was not a big deal because they don't know what it is that we're feeling. How do you feel after writing these things down? Relieved and hopeful. Thank you so much for that, man. Thank you so much. And I really, really hope that um, you can find some help because you def- deserve to feel peace and you deserve to feel intimacy. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself ZZ. She writes, I love when I'm returning home from a walk with my dog and I ring the doorbell to be let into the house. My dog intuitively barks at the sound even though we're the ones at the door. He's so hilariously stupid. (laughs) Maybe he's just polite. This is... uh, from the love survey filled out by Clean Laundry Queen. And she writes, I love it when you cut into an avocado and it's the perfect shade of green. I love making coffee for my husband and myself in the morning. I love it when I write something out and there are no spelling errors. I love making the bed in the morning. I love putting hot sauce on a ton of different foods. I love it when I see myself improving both mentally and physically. Oh, those are great. Those are great. This is another shame and secret survey. This is filled up by a woman who calls herself, I messed up so bad. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. She writes, I told my mother years later, it happened when I was four, and I told my mother around age eight, and she took me to his house and told him what I had admitted to her, and he denied. Then she sat there visiting with him and left me standing right there in front of him. Oh my God. I felt so naked and re-victimized as I think anybody would. Then when I was a teen, my uncle attempted to assault me and only was able to grope me under my skirt. Again, I told my mother only sooner and she called me a liar and sent me to my room. Oh my God. 
Then she later told my aunt, who admitted to me, uh, who admitted to me that he had done it to one of my cousins also. I never knew if she had told my mother about my cousin. My biggest shame in this is that my daughter was sexually molested from 7 to 11, and she tried to tell me, but I was so deep in my depression, I couldn't hear what she said, and I couldn't help her. Years later, she told me again, and I reported it to the police, and he was prosecuted, but she suffered because of my illness and my inability to be present for her. You know, as as much as that is tragic that that happened, it's good that you are taking ownership of it now. And I'm not quite clear by what you mean when you say um, that I couldn't hear what she said and I couldn't help her. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that, but um, again, the fact that you are taking ownership uh, of your part in that is, is really, really great. And I would imagine is probably salvaging a relationship with your with your daughter. She's also been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I had complete emotional and mental abuse from my mother from as long as I can remember. She molded me into a perfect victim, and I believe predators could see it in me. Any positive experiences with the abusers? No, I don't remember good memories with her, but I remember laughing at her, and that felt good when she was so grossly absurd, like when she would tell me she didn't want my family, me and my children, bringing people to holidays, and she refused to accept my son's girlfriend's kids as families unless they were married to one of us. Yet my sister was bringing her live-in boyfriend and his son, and they were unconditionally accepted. How chaotic darkest thoughts. My deepest, darkest thoughts came out in dreams. I dreamt once of pounding my stepfather's head into a brick wall until it bled, and I could feel and smell the blood all over me. Another time, I dreamt I was trying out murder and how to hide a body, but it wasn't working, and I just couldn't get it right, so I decided I wouldn't make a good killer. Darkest secrets. My mother was such a narcissist that I always felt like I had to tell everyone everything in complete truth or they would believe I was a liar, just like my mother was always calling me. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being used for another person's pleasure. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Tell my mother I don't want her in my life. I've got tons of fear that she was right about so much of what she said and implied to me growing up. <sighs> Man. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for security all the time, be it financial or health or physical, etc. Have you shared these things with others? I'm in therapy and I've shared with my children at the times I've apologized for not being able to be there for them. That's so good that you're in therapy because, man... Man, did you experience a lot. Not only as a kid, but as an adult. How do you feel after writing these things down? I know this is all healing and allowing you and the listeners to hear it while being anonymous is a safe, healthy thing. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope you can accept yourself and love yourself because the abuse isn't who you are and you deserve to be safe and at peace. So true. So true. Thank you for that, man. You went you went deep.
This is from the Love Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Bug. She writes, I love my fiance. She's the only person I know who likes the same music shows and we love going on trips together, which is something I never got to do before being with her. When we hug, I feel so safe and loved. People I've dated before had thought that I was too needy with physical affection, but she loves all the affection I give her and even wants more. We fit together like puzzle pieces when we snuggle. Her smile and laughter brings me so much joy. We joke around with each other all the time, but we can be serious together too, solving problems and taking care of each other. She takes amazing care of me too. She'll interact with service people for me because I have a lot of social anxiety. She'll surprise me with a special dinner or something small like that, and I do the same for her. My fiancé is the person I appreciate most in my life, and I try to express that to her whenever possible. We communicate very well, too. I don't feel like there is anything I couldn't talk to her about. I have to be honest. Sometimes it takes me a long time to communicate my feelings. But I always eventually let her in because I realize that she is the person I trust most. I love her so much, and I tell her every day. That's, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, never thought I'd be a morning person. And she writes, it's 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning in January, and I am up like a light. I can't waste this most precious hour of the week. My dog doesn't move from his bed, but his eyes follow me around our room, and his tail starts wagging madly when I grab his harness because he knows what that signals. We are going for a jog. Most of the time, we don't go running. This is because we live in a densely populated urban area, and the streets are almost always filled with things that cause my dog to absolutely lose his shit. This includes, but is not limited to, other dogs, children, which is especially awkward, women in floral print dresses, which is especially puzzling, male and delivery personnel, construction workers, cats, squirrels, and birds of any kind. We are working on this in training, but progress is slow when it comes, if it comes at all. Most of our outdoor expeditions are a total minefield, but not today. I check the weather and do a little happy dance as I put on my running shoes. It's 34 degrees Fahrenheit and raining with, quote, possible wintry mix, which means we've hit the trifecta of weekend, pre-sunrise, and shitty weather. We're almost guaranteed to have the streets to ourselves for once. Sure enough, it's a frigid, soggy ghost town when we step outside. My pup looks up at me to ask if he is a good boy. I assure him that he is the best boy. And then we're off, just a girl and her dog, leaping over puddles in unison and full of gratitude for this dark, miserable, glorious hour of peace. That was like a poem. That was awesome. Thank you for that. I hope you guys enjoyed today's today's episode. And thanks as always to the people that fill out the surveys and thanks to my guests and uh, the monthly donors. Um, if you guys are ever interested in supporting the show financially, we can always use more financial support. Um, I, I always hate asking for it, but you know it's a it's a necessary thing to. To keep the podcast going, um, you can donate through PayPal or Patreon, but enough of that. Um, I'm just uh, really grateful for this 
kind of community that the podcast helps bring together. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck or, or hopeless, just remember that you're not alone and there is help out there. Um, we just have to get out of our comfort zone and, and look for it. And your family might not be the people that you're related to. They might be people in support groups or friends that you just haven't met yet. So um, yeah, never forget, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.